0: Welcome to the 387th episode of the Jamie Delaney Plant-Based Wellness Podcast. My name is Jamie Delaney, and I'm your host. I'm a plant-based cardiologist, an endurance athlete, and a professional ball thrower for a German Shepherd, and I live in Southwest Florida, and I'm trying to do a podcast tonight with the help of a German Shepherd that wants me to throw a ball. So welcome, and thanks for listening. So I'm going to give you a chance to turn it off tonight because I'm going to talk about statistics. Ugh. The thing we all hated in medical school, the the thing we all hated in college. Nobody wanted to take statistics, I guess, except a few statisticians. But I want to talk about some studies today and how people look at studies and come up with whether we should do something or not, and often how we ignore data and still try to recommend things. So we know that people that have really high cholesterol have increased risk of cardiovascular disease. Last year, I'm sorry, last week, I talked about the Finns who managed to decrease their cholesterol, stop smoking, decrease their salt intake, and they cut their incidence of heart attacks by 70%. So something to decreasing your cholesterol through diet, I'm going to say, decreases your incidence of cardiovascular events. But we've changed that with statins. And certainly over my career, since beginning uh, in the nineteen late 1980s, when these statins were introduced, it seems as though, if you kind of, you know, a feel for it, so to speak, anecdotal evidence, that it seems like a lot of the big heart attacks may have decreased some. But is it true? And... Is it because of statin therapies? When I first started, a cholesterol 240 was the cutoff. And then it became 220, and then it became 200, and then it became 150, and then it became as low as you can go. Most of the studies were done in people that already had a heart attack, not as a prevention. The prevention trials came later and were kind of mixed up. The other thing that muddied the waters in cholesterol, mainly statin therapy studies, was that people were entered into the studies. And if they didn't tolerate statins, then they were excluded from participating in the trial. And those people were excluded from all the data. So we don't know much about how many of those were excluded and what ultimately happened to them. And if those people would have had a benefit or not, or are those people like the general population, how many of those are in the general population that also may have side effects that keep them from taking statins and therefore getting any benefit? So you can see how the waters got muddied from the get-go. And then we had various endpoints and typically they are heart attacks, all cardiovascular diseases so strokes heart attacks lumped into hospitalizations um, stent placement lumped in together and then all-cause mortality and if you look at any study or you're trying to apply any results to yourself all-cause mortality is the best endpoint that you could possibly look at because if you you know if a treatment may result in maybe decreased morbidity, but you ultimately die quicker from something else, then it really didn't help you. So we'll we'll come back around to that in a little bit. But this week, uh, in the Journal of American Medical Association, there was a meta-analysis of multiple studies of randomized trials looking at primary and secondary prevention, primary meaning before anybody's had an event, secondary meaning after they've had an event, And they looked at total mortality, total cardiovascular mortality, and cardiovascular events with regard to LDL, or low-density lipoprotein reduction, because that's the bad player. So if we look at total cholesterol, and then there's HDL, which typically in the past we've called good cholesterol, but it's really not that good of a marker for good. That means that cholesterol is being brought back to the liver to be metabolized, so... Um, People have um, compared it to garbage trucks. If people have a lot of garbage, they need a lot of garbage trucks. So if you have a lot of cholesterol, typically people have a lot of HDL because they're bringing that cholesterol back to the liver to be metabolized. And LDL, which is thought to be the cholesterol that ends up in your blood vessel wall. We also know that not all cholesterols are alike. Some LDLs are big, some are small. Bigger particles are less likely to get under the rug and there's also co-founding factors whether or not the cholesterols oxidize meaning is there's something else done to cause this chemical reaction that makes it easier for the cholesterol to get under the endothelial cell the other thing that we need to take into account with all this is cholesterol's not the only player We know that smoking increases your risk of a heart attack, cholesterol increases your risk of heart attack, diabetes increases your risk of heart attack, mainly through clotting factors and inflammatory markers. So if we look at a plaque, we see inflammatory markers as well as cholesterol, as well as other proteins that cause problems. So the authors of this study gathered up all the cholesterol trials and were able to randomize uh, look at the randomized trials and they came up with 21 studies that looked at primary and secondary preventions on statins and total cardiovascular mortality and cardiovascular mortality including cardiac events all of the trials were funded in part or exclusively by the pharmaceutical industries the results showed that all-cause mortality by taking a statin drug reduced was reduced by 0.8%. Heart attacks were rezu- reduced by 1.3%. Strokes were reduced by 0.4% versus control. Now, previous studies have looked at what we call relative risk, and, the re- and relative risk uh, and and this, these trials included um, the 21 trials that they looked at. They were two years or longer. They had to have more than 1,000 patients, and they looked at LDL reductions any place from 16.9 to 67 in this evaluation. So the idea is that the lower the LDL, the better. Previous studies have shown a 38.7 milligram reduction in cholesterol, which resulted in 21% relative risk reduction and a 10% relative risk reduction in mortality. So that sounds pretty good. A Relative risk of 29% for reduction for heart attacks, but the absolute risk was 1.3%. So you would need 77% patients to be treated with a statin for 4.4 years to prevent one heart attack. Now, a lot of people say, well, this is a meta-analysis, meaning we took a lot of different studies. They took a lot of different studies, and they pulled the results, and some of them differed, and that, and that does actually weaken the ability to predict but the problem is most of the studies that we look at for guidance look at relative risk and certainly when a drug representative walks into a doctor's office this is not a joke with um you know lunch they they talk about the relative risk reduction you can also say that there are different statins used and not a lot is known about the compliance uh, not a lot is known about the baseline level of ldl Um, again, the duration had to be at least two years, other risk factors that people may have, of course, nobody asked about diet. The other thing that we don't take into account in these studies are, you know, the adverse events and the actual risk of therapy. So the reality of it is it takes a lot of people to be treated with a statin to see any good results. And there's also associated increased side effects in a fair amount of these people, such as diabetes, the risk factor may be increased up to 4%. One of the other things that, you know, obviously they didn't look at whether people, you know, again, were plant-based, you know, a good 0.05% or so, or if they exercise. So we don't know all of those things. We do know that 10,000 patients over five years could cause at least five cases of muscle weakness, 50 to 100 cases of diabetes, 5 to 10 cases of hemorrhagic stroke or bleeding stroke if those risks are according to what the study would delineate. The problem is that we quickly extrapolate from the relative risk data that uh, decreasing your ldl causes a decrease in cardiovascular events and so even if you haven't had one you should take it certainly if you have risk factors diabetes high blood pressure you smoke you should take it if you're overweight you should take a cholesterol medication and more and more people are having their cholesterol checked at younger and younger ages and they're even kids with high cholesterol so are we going to put people on lipid therapy in their teens for how many years And what's going to happen to those people as side effects and how do we tease it out and is it worth over someone's 40-year lifespan to decrease the risk of a heart attack or stroke by a little over 1%? So how do you figure, so what exactly is absolute risk versus relative risk? This is a question that is usually worded on medical entrance exams and board tests to screw people up. So most doctors sweat over these little tables. They're worded funny. Um, The answers are close enough that it trips people up. So what seems obvious is not obvious even for medical students or um, doctors out in practice. To figure this out, we need to make a little table. And one of the things that we can do is look at the incidence of disease so, if we make a four by four table and we look at who has who actually has a diagnosis of disease, so who has, let's say, we'll put it into lung cancer. So, there was a, if there are one hundred smokers and one hundred non-smokers, the total of smokers would be one hundred, and the total of non-smokers would be one hundred, and then we divided those two groups into the smokers that had lung cancer and the smokers that didn't have lung cancer, and the smokers and the people that didn't smoke who had lung cancer and the people that smoked who had lung cancer. So um, basically we have a table that looks at the number of people with a risk factor who actually has disease divided by the total number of people in that population. So if we looked at the total number of smokers with lung cancer divided by the total number of smokers with and without lung cancer divided by the total non-smokers who had lung cancer divided by the people without lung cancer that didn't smoke so relative risk is basically comparing the percentage of people that have a risk factor with disease versus the percentage of people without a risk factor that have the disease And if a relative risk is less than 1, then there's less risk in that group that has the risk factors. If it's greater than 1, there's more risk in that group. And the relative risk reduction is 1 minus the the relative risk times of 100. So it's the percentage of those people. So it becomes a mathematical model versus if you look at, we'll say, the people that took a statin that had a heart attack or died versus the people that didn't take a statin and had a heart attack or died and just took those absolute numbers and that is often much much lower and it depends if you look at the math equation on how many people were in the group and how many people actually had the disease so very small studies may be very different than larger studies it's it's Um, you know obviously the larger the study the more the more chance you have to have people that have an event so if we took 20 people and let's say we took 20 people that were marathon runners and we looked whether statins helped them or not there may not be any heart attacks in the groups or maybe there's one in each group so the statistical power of that study would be very very low on the other hand if we looked at all 70 year olds you know then we would have a a greater incidence of heart attack and death and we could tease out whether or not they were on statins and and whether it helped them or not so a lot of you know when people come into the office which they don't come in the office very more because we don't do anything with pharmaceutical representatives in my office But in the old days, when they would come in and they would say, you know, the relative risk of our study showed that there was a 23% reduction if we used, you know, this blood pressure medicine versus another, you know, another medicine or, you know, didn't treat at all. And the first thing I would ask, well, how many people were in this study? And how many people had events? If only one or two people in each arm of the study had an event, then it really, it's really hard to tease that information out. The other thing that's hard to tease out is if you have a study and you see there's 11% reduction in death from a treatment, would you be one of those 11%? How do you know? And the only way you're going to know whether or not it would benefit you is if you looked at that particular study and are those people like me? Do those people exercise? Do those people eat plant-based? Do those people smoke? Are they my age or are they much younger? If a therapy markedly helps a young person, does it still help an older person? Chances are an older person might be on more medications that may interact with a certain therapy or cause them to be more at risk for a certain procedure, and they might do worse in the long run. I have people come to the office on cholesterol medicines that are 90 years old. I stop them, their primary care starts them. I stop them, their primary care starts them again. It's like there's never been a trial Looking at a 90-year-old, whether it helps or not, you might say, well, most likely the 90-year-old has vascular disease, so anything you could do might help. But maybe it won't help. Maybe it'll cause them to have worsening control of their diabetes. Maybe it will cause their stroke to be hemorrhagic. Maybe they'll have muscle pain, so they can't walk well enough, and they'll fall and break their hip. So some of these things become very hard to tease out, Um, and most of the time it isn't what it seems and it kind of takes years for therapies to be out such as statins before we come around the barn and say well you know maybe this is not such a great therapy after all now it certainly does do some benefit and if a person is not likely to do any intervention to help themselves Um, such as change their diet and exercise and normalize their BMI, maybe that that would benefit them. It's worth the risk for those people. But it should be a personal decision, and we need to take those decisions as an individual risk before we make a blanket statement, you should take this. The same thing goes when people come to my office and they adopt a plant-based diet and they have coronary artery disease and their cholesterol starts to go down on its own. I stop the statin. Their cholesterols come down and they're no longer oxidizing their LDL. They're decreasing their inflammation in their body. They're decreasing the inflammation through what they eat. So their risk goes markedly down. But there are a lot of physicians that don't want to ever stop the statin because what if something happens? But again, I think that's a personal decision. If somebody wants to take a statin in my office, I, I don't say, no, we're, you know, we're taking you off of this. You can't have it anymore. But most people that come to my office want to get off of these things that cause their muscles to ache or increases their risk of diabetes or, or, or has other, have other side effects to them. We use a lipid profile as a means for feedback. So we alter someone's nutrition. First, we work with them to see what they're doing now and alter what they're eating and see if we can lower their cholesterol. There are people that have a lot of trouble getting much under 200. But again, if they're not eating things that oxidize the cholesterol, their body mass index is normal, their inflammatory markers are normal, they're exercising, I believe the risk is, is very, very low. I would also argue, on the other hand, the guy that I see on TV that's advertising for the, the statins who continues to eat the steak on the grill, and he's taking a cholesterol medication to lower his LDL, but he's still oxidizing the, that LDL that he has because it never goes to zero, is still at risk because he still has a lot of inflammation in his body, and inflammation is part of what that causes that plaque he still is overweight um, the, the chances of being insulin resistant are are there the chances of having an increased risk of clotting is there so I would argue that just decreasing cholesterol by itself in a vacuum is not going to really do the trick and I think that's what we have to look at in most diseases is that it's not ever just one thing. It's not ever as simple as just fix your cholesterol and you're good to go. There's always a host of interactions that people have to deal with that are causing potential problems. I hear people talking uh, about this week food prep. Prepping on Sundays for the week, prepping all day, always in the kitchen, takes too long to cut, don't want to be in the kitchen, I always come back to the most important thing you do is how you feed yourself because ultimately your health is going to be about your nutrition. So I think one, changing your mindset on food prep as, a, as opposed to it being something that you hate to do as opposed to something that you have the opportunity to control what food you take in that it might help you as opposed to putting your head in the sand and hoping for the best. That being said, i think you i think a lot of people make this way too difficult because there are a lot of people that aren't fond of cooking haven't cooked much and all of a sudden they're trying to follow this laundry listed giant recipe and becomes very frustrating and day in and day out the pressure of what am i going to cook and are people going to like it are they going to eat it so i always say keep it simple Um, This week, I just wanted to go over what I've had so far. We had barbecued jackfruit. Um, I took jackfruit in a can uh, and I rinse it and boil it and dump the water off and then add my own barbecue sauce, mashed potatoes, fresh corn on the cob and Swiss chard. Swiss chard actually got out of my garden. We had a dinner of lentils, rice, collards, again, out of the garden, tomatoes and cauliflower. Tomatoes were out of the garden, actually tower garden. On Monday we had a broccoli rice casserole that was made with chickpeas, broccoli, uh, potato cheese sauce, nutritional yeast, carrots, and rice. We also had broccolini and mushrooms as well as sweet potato and seasoned tofu. This Friday in class we're doing skillet, iron skillet pizza, and we'll use Peppers, mushrooms, spinach, artichokes, fresh tomato, and basil. So I think if you make a and and don't email me for the recipes. There's tons of recipes out there, but again, these are simple. I put the brown, I put the broccoli and the mushrooms in a skillet. Add garlic, black pepper, a little bit of water. Um, I put the baked potato in the oven. You know, the broccoli cheese casserole, you can find the potato cheese sauces all over the place. I don't use nuts. It adds 500 calories to it. Uh, Tastes great without it. Cauliflower, I just boiled it this week and added it to the other things. The Swiss chard, put it in a skillet, garlic, black pepper. Same thing with the collards. I like smoked paprika with my collards. But no big giant recipe, not 27 different spices, just simple stuff. I make corn on the cob, I put the corn, I shuck the corn, I put it in the skillet with about a half inch of water, turn it over, it's three minutes, it's done. Mashed potatoes, I make with almond, or actually soy milk, uh, a little bit of miso, black pepper and garlic, so it's, it's really, really easy. The skillet pizza, I make the crust, that recipe's in the cookbook, but there's lots of pizza crust recipes out there, some people buy. Um, crusted or made without oil, Uh, there's a variety of different different brands. Uh, I make sauce out of tomatoes, just add tomato paste, garlic, basil, oregano, and then chop up vegetables, saute them lightly in water, put them in, bake the pizza, easy to go. So I think keeping it simple, um, I like to, it makes it easier if I have my grains prepped. So. I don't prep a bunch of grains in advance, but if I make rice for one dish, I'll make extra so we either have it for lunch or a different meal that week. Um, same way with beans, I'll make extra so I have beans to repurpose different ways. You know, we had lentils. I had lentils a lot because we had lentils in class last Friday, so I had them left over, and we had them a variety of different ways. I had them for lunch all week. potatoes again you can bake extra ones so you have them you can just warm up that that kind of helps you get started otherwise i don't mind prepping the vegetables i like prepping my greens so they're fresh and they're not wilty Um, i don't think it's any problem just you know chopping up vegetables same way with breakfast you don't have to make a giant pot of oatmeal uh, in an insta pot and portion it out for a week you can put a um, quarter cup of oatmeal in a bowl with some chia seeds and cover it with water and microwave it for a minute and a half it's just as good or chia seeds and fruit and i cut my fruit up i may take the seeds out of my papayas and put them in a bag uh, in the refrigerator so they're kind of ready to go or partly prepped i'll prep watermelon you know about a half at a time and put that in a jar or in a glass dish But the rest of this stuff, my mangoes, I cut up each morning, you know, berries that can be frozen. You just, um, you know, take them out of the freezer and throw them on your cereal or your oatmeal or the rest of the fruit, and it melts, but they're thawed by the time you get to to them. So it doesn't take a lot. Breakfast shouldn't take you hours to prepare. Um, It shouldn't take, you know, it shouldn't be some god-awful concoction of, you know, six different grains and all these different things because that's going to lead to, Taking way too much time and people are going to quit. Um, they're not going to. They're not going to stick to it, and then they're going to grab something simple that's not going to be good. So, keep keep your keep your meals simple if you're just starting out. Maybe on the weekend, do something. And I've said it over and over again, but uh, you know, I also think you know having a menu plan. Just write out what you have. Look in the refrigerator, or when you go to the grocery store, plan. This is what I'm going to have. You know, Mexican night, pizza night, soup night casserole night, simple night you know have, a, have your one one or two simple meals or you know have something that you can repurpose on Monday and Thursday um, have a weekend that you can use for lunches. Th- those kind of things make this very very simple. If you have to think about it um, in great detail every time you go to make your, your food, it'll become frustrating. If you do a smoothie for breakfast, and it doesn't keep you full and you end up snacking before lunch, then that's not working and you need to change that up. If you can drink your green smoothie without putting peanut butter and all those high-calorie foods in it and you'll wait till lunch, then that's another thing. But I believe a lot of people put so many high-calorie items in their smoothie and they're still not full and then they end up eating a second breakfast, but they really haven't done much as far as activity. And it's a source of calories that they don't really need. We're going to look a little bit about osteoporosis now. Um, But one of the biggest ways that you can prevent osteoporosis is to maintain your muscle mass. Each month in our practice, we have a wellness challenge that involves some sort of movement and or strength training. And this week uh, this month Addie has designed for us a different kettlebell move every week and you might say well how is you know one exercise gonna help me out well one exercise gets you in the in the gym or in in your exercise room to do something and one exercise usually leads to something else so if you walk in knowing that you just have to do three sets of ten or three sets sets of six reps um, then you're done and if you want to quit great you've done something you've walked up there you've walked in you've you know you've bent over you picked something up you've, you've done something but chances are you'll build on it and that's and that's what it's all about so um we're we're doing a kettlebell challenge this this week and then you know add on certain things i try to add on to my morning routine whether it's some push-ups or pull-ups um my lunges you know a different warm-up routine but i think that you add those things on and you can get a um a really good routine going strength training is also gardening it's also lifting mulch lifting blocks moving things around it's moving is you know is uh, um, gives people an option so lifting something heavy it doesn't have to be a weight lifting something heavy properly so bending over and pulling your back out is not the way to go but if you're lifting with by doing a squat keeping it close to you in front then it can be a very good exercise but we need to incorporate those because that's the only way we're going to prevent osteoporosis and it really comes down to there's and again there's not one thing that causes osteoporosis there is a, a several things that lead or make people's risk for osteoporosis worse or greater but one thing we know is that when you stop growing um, the muscle mass and the bone mass that you've attained is you know a good place for you to start and so if you're losing from there then the more you have to start with the more you have to lose just like brain power you know, if you've never developed your brain and you start to lose part of it, there's not a whole lot that you're you don't have you don't have a lot to lose. It's kind of the same way. So as we get older, we lose muscle and bone mass. If you eat a high protein animal-based diet, you lose more bone mass and pro, and uh, fat mass, yeah, I'm sorry, you lose more bone mass and muscle mass. Um, You can refer to this uh, podcast last week when I talked about a ketogenic diet and how we break down protein to get glucose to our brain so that protein largely comes from muscle. So as we age, um, our, our growth factors are declining, our stem cells are declining, and we start to lose muscle and bone mass. It gets worse after age 60. Um, but it starts after about age 25 so if you've went through a lot of years with a desk job then chances are you've lost you've lost muscle mass and bone mass being afraid to move because you might hurt yourself is not the answer because if you don't move it's going to get worse sooner so moving is not the enemy moving is the savior if we take people into space, they lose muscle mass and bone mass. We need gravity on our bodies, and we need to move our bodies in a variety of ways to keep our muscle and bone mass going. Women have more osteoporosis than men, but men can get osteoporosis. Menopause after menopause, osteoporosis or bone mass and bone loss accelerate it comes to mind that we lose estrogen and it must be because we've lost estrogen but there are some studies that also show that we also lose pituitary function uh, different hormones that the pituitary puts out that maintain uh, bone mass as well so it's not all estrogen and if you have fat then that fat also goes to make estrogen and the question always comes up whether people that are overweight will have more osteoporosis. Turns out that if you have more muscle mass, um, that your weight is a function of your muscle mass, not necessarily fat mass. So our bones are always in a state of flux. We break bone down through little cells called osteoclasts. You can think about their taking, take, breaking them down and osteoblasts, cause bone to build. And there's a variety of factors associated with them. But our bone mass is truly related to our overall all cause mortality so losing you know progressive osteoporosis without doing anything about it or doing anything to decrease our risk factors in a, you know in total can result in uh, a decrease longevity a nerdy thing about bone cell formation is that it comes from the same stem cells that also cause fat cell differentiation. So we have stem cells that can become ligaments, can become fat, can become blood vessels, can become bone. And depending on a variety of risk and genetic alterations, then you know it's whether or not we form more fat in our bones or more bone in our bones. And again, the leaner that people are, the more muscle they tend to have, the less osteoporosis they tend to have. We also know that people that are low in vitamin D tend to have more osteoporosis and that people that have increased inflammation have more osteoporosis because they're breaking down bone. There are medications that cause osteoporosis, medications that are given to decrease hormones after breast cancer, increase the risk of osteoporosis, but also diabetic medications um, that are, you know, the newer medications that stimulate um, more insulin production uh, such as trulicity in the brain. They've also been shown to decrease bone formation and increase bone uh, decrease or uh, breakdown, increase osteoclast. So normalizing vitamin D levels or getting vitamin D level up into that mid-range of 50 may very well help in bone, um, a decrease in bone turnover and stimulate bone formation. Calcium intake has not been shown to really turn things around. We know that people decrease the protein in their animal protein in their diet. They decrease calcium resorption from the bone so people can hang on to calcium better. There is more osteoporosis in countries that eat more dairy, uh, have a higher animal intake. Getting adequate calories is important. Um, we don't want excessive calories and that people become obese, but if you're malnourished, you're more, more likely to become osteoporotic. The type of nutrients we take in, again, uh, plant-based diets are associated with a decrease in uh, bone loss as opposed to animal-based diets. Alcohol can increase bone turnover. So it's n- not just one thing that causes osteoporosis, but the things that we can do to summarize is eat a plant-based diet and exercise and move our body and assure that you know our children and uh, move their bodies and have good bone mass and have good exercise habits and good nutrition and in, in, in habits. We also have to question medications that we take. Are the, risk verse, are the risk of the medication greater than the benefits of the medication? If there's another way around, should we not do that as opposed to take the medication in the form of, we talked about cholesterol, if you can get your cholesterol down through your nutrition and decrease oxidation through your nutrition is that not a better way to go? The Finns would say yes. If you can get your diabetes under control by changing your nutrition so that you don't have to take medications that increase your risk of osteoporosis, um, and next week I'll talk about some other things that some of these medications can cause, um, wouldn't it be better to do it? So everything we take has consequences, and not and there's just not one thing that is the root of all evils. So we have to look at things in a broad view. We're all a little bit different, but we're all a little bit alike and look at the big picture and see what's the best we can do. Make that decision for our own selves and carry on and do the best you can. And that, that's really what we do in the office. We try to help people move the dial to a little bit better exercise and a little bit better nutrition It's not an all or none thing. It's an evolution for everybody. So try to make yourself a little bit healthier tomorrow by eating a little bit better, trying a few more food choices. Try something different and then give yourself feedback. Don't quit because it didn't work. Give yourself feedback and try something else or tweak it a little bit more and enjoy that process. You know, enjoy the feedback, enjoy the process and you too can get healthier at any age. If you want to hear more about our practice, you can email me at jamie at drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y. Go over to the website at drdelaney.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-D-U-L-A-N-E-Y, and find out how you can join the practice, sign up for our newsletter, um, and uh, see what's going on. In case you didn't know it, Mother's Day was invented in West Virginia, so I'd like to wish everybody all over the world Happy Mother's Day. And especially to Addie Delaney Meinert, uh happy Mother's Day to you, and the diva, Alfreda Delaney, my mother. So happy Mother's Day to each of you. Have a great day. Eat for your health. Move your body. And enjoy every day the, most, the best that you can. Thanks for listening. <laughs>